0: podcast de Welcome to the Travel Tribe Podcast. There are many people listening who are working in traditional business jobs such as marketing or finance who actually enjoy what they do. However, they might be getting tired of the same routine, getting burnt out from the same environment, or just have an itch to explore the world. Today, I wanted to shine light on how some people are taking their business skill sets to take advantage of international opportunities to work and live abroad. Not only do they get a chance to explore new cultures and sites, but they also add value to the organizations they join by bringing different perspectives and skill sets. Today, on the podcast, we will be having Stephen Proud, Global Marketing Director of Brandigo in Shanghai, to discuss his experiences living and working in China we will be covering how to get your foot in the door working in China, the advantages and disadvantages of working abroad, what it's like to raise a family in China, and lastly, his experiences and the response of the Chinese during the pandemic crisis. As a point of reference, this show was recorded live on April 3rd, 2020. Please welcome Stephen to the show.
1: Ni hao Ma, Stephen, how are you? Ni hao, wo shi hao, Nina? Wo hen hao. It's good to see good, you. Good to see you as well. It's, it's reminding me of some of the, the Chinese I learned during my uh, three months uh, studying in China during my global MBA program. Uh-huh. Our uh, Chinese teacher would just sit there and laugh while we tried to pronounce the Chinese word. And you'd actually particularly harp on me because of my Korean accent, she said I had. So. Um, Mine was better in
2: Beijing because Beijing has a sound in it and you get that with my native liverpool accent as well so yeah. uh, my chinese was better when we lived up north
1: that's fantastic You got the liverpool beijing accent while well, i got the soul chicago uh accent in chinese but uh it's fantastic having you on the show thank you so much for taking the time to oh. to be with us I wanna talk a little bit about your story because you have an interesting story that we were discussing earlier today because I don't think you know, 10, 15 years ago or when you were 18 years old, you were saying, oh, I'm gonna be living in Shanghai, China. Mm-hmm. How did this happen? Tell me a little bit about the story and how this started. Thanks
2: for having me on as well, man. I've been looking forward to doing this. So this is, like I said, I think me and my family, we might be a little bit different from some of the, the guests that I've watched on the, the shows you've done so far. So Victoria and I, Victoria's my wife, um, mm-hmm. we, going back, let me see, 2012, um, we were both doing the kind of the corporate thing. We were working as management. We were chasing the promotions. We were going to get married. We were going to buy a house. And then we just thought, hey, why don't we do a year abroad before we kind of have all of those things, you know, before the roots go that deep, let's do a year abroad. Um, I wanted to, to volunteer at the Olympics we had the, the Olympics in London that year. So it kind of all made sense that we could quit our jobs. Um, I could go and do the Olympics for a few weeks. Victoria moved out to, well, we ended up in Seoul. Um, mm-hmm. So we just said, okay, fine. It was almost, it was an overnight change for me. I'd always been kind of very career focused, like, um, done a lot of traveling but not for longer than maybe five or six weeks for Mm -hmm. for any single trip so like you know half a ski season or or something like that um victoria had lived abroad she'd lived in dublin in the past Mm she lived in maryland for a couple of years as well so she had to talk me into it if i'm being kind of brutally honest because i was like well i don't want to take a year out from my career because my career is on this kind of trajectory and i kind of think well that's you know, a, a wasted opportunity. So we, we made the decision. We were like, right, we'll do a year and then we'll come back and we'll get married and we'll buy the house. And that was, what, eight years ago. So it turned into eight years and I don't think we'll be going back to live back in the UK anytime soon
1: was there any kind of fear before you left because i know that you're when you're leaving from the uk going to korea that first uh time i mean it's the unknown you don't know what to expect you don't know if you have friends uh were there any fears and did it was it easier by going with a partner
2: for sure it was easier going with a partner yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. um we we both done like i said we've both done a lot of traveling so i'd I'd spent an extended period of time in the U.S. Had spent an extended period of time in Canada, living and growing up in the U.K. It's a short hop to Europe, so you know you'd spend summers traveling around Europe and things like that. Victoria and I did a, uh, like a, a four-week, three-week trip in Vietnam a long time ago when Vietnam was like hardly experienced by foreigners. I'd done yeah. Thailand maybe, 50, maybe twenty years ago. I went to Thailand, so we have both done, so it, we weren't necessarily daunted by the travel. Had the two of us together was a good kind of, yeah, we supported each other. But we're both quite outgoing people as well. I wasn't really worried about culture shock or making friends. That was kind of part of the fun, part of the fun to go and be shocked and go and, like, push the, the comfort zone a little bit. If I'm being brutally honest, I'd done... So I, I'd been nearly 15 years in business and I was burning out. I was losing motivation, you know, chasing what you think the most important thing at the time. And it maybe it wasn't the most important thing, but you, you expected, or certainly with the way I would brought up, you expected to, you go to school, you go to university and then you go to work and that's it now until you're 65. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of ready to kind of go down that road and it, it wasn't working for me so the opportunity to go and have this time abroad was like let off a bit of pressure make sure the job and the career that I had was what I actually really wanted to do as well so it was a bit of a leap but it was quite a therapeutic leap to take it was it was it was good for me at that stage of my life to to go and just get out of my comfort zone a little bit and, and try something different and try something new
1: uh, at least for me and some of the guests I've had, and some of my friends, you know, you, you have this gut feeling that something's wrong, you know, like when I was working right afterwards, I was like, something's not right. And I was just trying to suppress it and suppress it and saying, just put your head down, just keep doing what you're doing. This is what you're supposed to be doing., uh, but i couldn't I couldn't get that feeling out that every day it was coming out like, this is wrong. And uh, you know, the, the older I got, the more I trust my instinct, knowing that it's telling me and it's guiding me on the direction i should be taking so you, you get to korea and then you get to china and we talked a little bit about this Was that seoul and korea is kind of like a light asia right it's like a it's a very westernized society like it almost is like a like an asian new york but once you get to china i know that china is a whole it's like the full experience Tell me how was that transition moving from Korea to China, and maybe some of the 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 culture shock that came with it? The, like I
2: said, I kind of mentioned the culture shock is is part of the fun. Like don't get me wrong, just moving from the u k to Asia, there's a lot of big difference, culturally, socially, um. I remember the first time we were in Vietnam, seeing some guy and his partner on a motorbike with a ten-foot, fully decorated Christmas tree oh, in rush hour traffic, that's traffic that's and stuff, which you, you're just not going to see that in, you know, on the old Kent Road in London in December. So, anywhere you go, there's going to be that element of shock. But but China can be can be quite full on in that. Not so much in kind of downtown Shanghai. Shanghai mm-hmm. is probably the most. Um, foreigner-friendly city in China, Um, there's a lot of kind of former, like one of the big neighbors here is the former French concession, and that's, you know, it's it's a bit more of a um, cosmopolitan city, Beijing is completely different, I mean, that's the other thing about China as well, you can't judge China on the one place you've been, so you spent some time in in Dalian, but if you go and spend some time in the middle, in Hernan province, or if you head out east to um, Kunming in Yunnan, it's going to be completely different all over yeah. again. Completely different. So it's it's even now we've been in China well six years. I've been in China every day. At some point, something <laughs> will surprise you, or you laugh, or or shock you every single day without yeah. fail. And that part of the 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 reason why you stay here is because you thrive on that. We like that. It's it's what makes it interesting. I agree with you. I'm only laughing
1: because I'm also remembering my time in Dalian. And every time, they're just every day. You just, for example, are walking. I was walking to class, just listening to some music, and it would just be something completely different that I would be like, "Wow." Well, I never thought I would see that in my lifetime, but I just did, and that's fantastic. <laughs> Do you have any any good uh, stories where you can kind of share some of maybe uh, some other kind of cultural shocks that happened to you? Oh,
2: man, I, I I don't know. Half, the, I don't know if some of the mics should be allowed to share. There's been a few interesting sites in a few different uh, entertainment establishments. Like I've seen um, a llama serving shots right in the middle <laughs> of nowhere. Yeah, in a, in a town called, um, what was it called? Pingyao which is like an old historic kind of touristy town right in the middle of of Shanghai. And we were literally, I think there was three foreigners there and everybody else was
1: kind of local tourists. So (laughs) It sounds like something that you would see on a meme, right? Three guys walking into a Chinese bar, getting served by a llama. But we discussed that China actually is, there's a lot of variety depending on what region you go to. I know you told me this earlier, it's kind of like the United States where you, you know, people from LA are very different from people from Austin, Texas. Uh, There's a lot of variety and for some reason, I believe that us Westerners, and correct me if I'm wrong, just have, that have not lived in China, been to China, envision China as this one image and they have like the big red flag and this is China, that there's a factory and people are working and that's kind of the only image they get of China. Do you find this uh, to be the similar situation with people from back home?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's lots and lots of misconceptions. And it kind of ties back into one of the things that if you want to make the jump abroad and live in a country such as this, you're going to have to kind of manage how your family perceive the country that you're living in. So we had this when we were in Korea, and every time there's a little bit of saver in between the North and the South. You know, we'd be in downtown Seoul and nobody cared. It's something that happened every day. But because it was maybe a, there was a political agenda at the time, it would be all over the Western press. So my mum would be ringing up saying, are they flying rockets over the city? Do you know your bomb shelter? I'm like, what are you talking about? It, it's just not like that. Um, and you you get a, a China because China is so polarizing in the kind of political, geopolitical world. and And things like that. You you have to not only manage your own perception and also kind of understand that everywhere you go within China is going to be completely different from the last place that you go but you're also going to have questions from your relatives at home and misconceptions and things like that and you know going through the last couple of months really crystallized that as well. The Western media made a big mistake in how they reported on the virus because all of a sudden they had to backpedal when it was on their doorsteps. So again, I mean, that's just, if you're going to come and live somewhere like China, it's something to be mindful of as well. It's not just how you perceive it, but it's how the folks you leave back home perceive it as well.
1: I think we both came to Korea at the same time period. In 2013, there was actually a lot of tension that was going on between the North and the South during that time period. I remember seeing an article saying World War III is on the verge, Seoul is about to be scorched. And my mom also messaging me, like, because I had just begun my journey, saying, hey, you need to leave. You need to get out. If you don't want to come home, you want to travel, go somewhere else, anywhere in the world. But that's the place you don't want to be. And I remember going to my class the next day and I was freaking out. I was going to my kids and saying, are you, how can you guys be studying right now when we're about to be nuked? This this, this desk isn't going to be here in like five minutes. And they're like, oh, Jordan teacher, don't worry about it. We don't really care. This guy's been saying this for the last 60 years. And that was mind boggling to me. The perspective that was so different from what everyone back at home was thinking, world war, they're getting ready for world war three. When people in school, like it was as if like your uncle had said some just joke during the dinner and nobody even like, ah, it's just our uncle, whatever he says, That's the way he is. Uh, what I wanted to get into as well is how are expats uh, acclimating towards living in China? I mean, you have, I mentioned this earlier while you were gone for a little bit, some of the limitations of living in China. And do you see expats kind of L- adhering to these and being friendly guests or rebelling against them
2: i i'd say 99% of the time it's the the friendly guests i've seen myself as as a guest here um i'm never going to be able to perhaps you know when you've had overseas communities that come and migrate to a country like i don't know i'm um, maybe uh, an asian um, a Middle Eastern or um, an Islamic person coming to live in the UK, you know, there's already a community, they eventually become partner over the period of time, they become, they're, they're British for one, you know, for all intents and purposes. That will never happen here. I would never have considered as kind of part of the community or anything, like that I will always be a guest here. And, and China wants to be that way and it, that works for me it's a, it's a good attitude i think because it, it sort of keeps you, keeps you respectful um of, of you know the realities of living here um even you know, I, I know a lot of people who have chinese wives or chinese spouses chinese husbands and even that could be quite a difficult situation as well you you don't automatically get a green card if you are to a chinese person so Or anything, or you know, which I think you can kind of get in in other countries. There's a whole process to go through to get citizenship. Very, very few people. So you'll always be a guest here. You never anything like a citizen. I had
1: the 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 ability and opportunity to take some history of China classes and China Chinese culture classes during our MBA, and learning some about the history of China and you know stemming from some of the wars where they had problems with foreigners and you know humiliation after kind of wars and so it kind of gave me a better understanding of why they sometimes would like to kind of isolate themselves or kind of you know be just kind of taking care of themselves at times just because of the history
2: of expats who have come unstuck especially in the last couple of weeks because um there's been a so i had personally not experienced any anti-foreigner Sentiments I've not experienced any kind of mistreatment, nobody's been rude to me or, or anything like that. But you hear a couple of stories on social media about um, a little bit of anti foreigner sentiment because it suits the current agenda to say we've won, we've beaten the virus, and it's only coming back because of all of these people coming back from abroad. Now, you can't stop Chinese nationals coming back to their own country, but you can stop foreigners from coming in. Like I said, it kind of suits to kind of stir that up a little. So um, a lot of foreigners, we're all on our best behavior at the moment because those that don't, and there's one or two recently that haven't, they're all over the national news and reported in, in no time.
1: Well, tell us a little bit more about your your work life in, in China. It looks like you were doing global marketing, working with some foreign companies on helping them create marketing and advertising campaigns for the Chinese market at Brandigo over there. Tell us, how did you get your foot in the door and yeah, your experiences of of starting working there?
2: Wow. Okay. So I was a really nerdy kid who really knew what they wanted to be when they were really, really little. Um, I was fascinated by newspapers and fascinated by the media. And I spent a little bit of time working in journalism and, and things like that. Um, and then that evolved, unless you're a big writer on a big newspaper, there's not a lot of money or career progression or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I discovered the world of PR and marketing and then I, I kind of focused on that throughout my bachelor's degree, my internships, my master's degree, all of that kind of thing. Um, around the time that we made the move to Korea, so I graduated in public relations, that industry doesn't exist. Anymore with the onset of you know social media and the type of thing that you're doing now with your podcast and things that having somebody that has to manage coverage in a newspaper and corporate messaging and stuff like that it just doesn't exist how it did so um, you had to broaden your skill sets but always really been interested in in marketing. Um, when I came to Shanghai, there was A market, I originally started marketing a Chinese company to foreign customers. So I was I was kind of the other way around. So I was working for a Chinese business in the education sector that owned a couple of schools. And my job was to come up with marketing strategies that would engage with expat communities and and foreigners and things like that. Um, And that was awesome because that gave me a really good insight into how Chinese business works and runs. Because again, it's quite a different. Attitudes of things, a real different working culture and and stuff like that. Um, And then having kind of spent my time doing that for about four years, moved down to Shanghai and I took three months off to just be dad. When we came down to Shanghai, I wasn't really looking for anything. I'd just finished the master's degree, which I did while I was working in, in Beijing. And Mike, who's my now boss, kind of was interviewing for a role. I didn't get the role that i interviewed for and he offered me the the directorship based on you know i've got 20 years experience working for it's it's really nerdy man it's it's none of the glamorous marketing and, and pr or social media or instagram or anything like that i do the, the nerdy oil companies and banks and and yeah. you know logistics companies and chemical engineering and stuff like that we don't get any celebrity photo shoes, we don't get any kardashians when we're doing our Infomarketing or anything like that, but I like that. I, this is the side that I've always been interested. So, kind of based on all of that experience, based on my kind of educational background, this opportunity came along, and I just went for it. It was something that I felt I could, I felt I'd enjoy it. It's a instant challenge. Um, so now I'm, I'm really, really lucky. I my office is in Shanghai. My other office is in Boston. Um, we have people in both who are really talented people. Um, I, I'm the only, I'm one of two foreigners. The other foreigner is actually one of the company owners who's Shanghai office. The rest of my team are all Chinese, but they're all hugely talented and their English is better than my English. So I kind of let them sort of do what they're good at. And I focus on the strategic side of the things for the agency and for developing new business and, and new clients for businesses overseas who wants to do social media marketing in China.
1: And are there any kind of skill sets, um, for example, that if you are a foreigner and you come to Shanghai, are there any kind of skill sets that people are looking for in foreigners, for example, maybe different perspective or different kinds of strategies?
2: Yeah. So I think you regardless of what it is, you have to have a very high level of cultural intelligence to come of mm-hmm. work in China, especially if it's within a Chinese organization um because things are so different and attitudes and and values are are so different so you have to be able to have the skill set or the the flexibility within you to operate in that environment and to be able to work like that um it's part of being an expat i really enjoy is mixing with all these different cultures and 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 things like that Um, in terms of the type of roles um good So China is very good at the making and very good at the doing and very good at the selling within China. But for businesses who are looking to expand beyond China, that's where there's opportunities for foreigners to come in and have a role. The thing about working for China or coming to work in China is it's quite a complex visa process. So it's not Mm -hmm. quite as easy as some other countries to go yet. There's very like you have to have a degree. So regardless of what you want to go and do or work in, if you want, unless you're like a a top level athlete or something like that, um, you have to have a degree to get a visa regardless of. um, Yeah. yeah.
1: They would not be letting Kobe Bryant into China without his uh, college degree. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Unless you've been like a top level engineer for 50 years and learned on the job and you're famous in your field, then it's just not going to happen. I guess i mean there's three a lot of a lot of expats come as a teacher they will start off as a teacher and that can be quite you know the salaries and packages that are on offer for qualified teachers in china um are are really really attractive teachers mm-hmm. get the highest i think the only one that comes close would be teaching in dubai said so if you get into one of the big international schools you can get a really good attractive package with flight allowance and healthcare and an apartment that comes with it and, and things like yeah. that. I know you're mentioning that your, your wife over
1: there works at one of the international schools. And I was also looking at some opportunities before, cause I know my friends are living out there as well. And they have really attractive packages for people who are looking to, to teach in China. And for me, I think that's such a, if you are young and if you're still, you know, looking to explore the world. I can't imagine a better opportunity to see something that is so different than what you're used to, experience a culture that is completely different. Uh, Not only will it open up your mind, but you are getting such attractive packages. You mentioned they pay for your flights, you have flight allowance from back and forth. You have summer and winter vacations. You have a lucrative salary, usually comes with a housing allowance. They usually have to give you assistance to help you as soon as you land. I know I, I, there are horror stories out there, of course, of private, private companies, but most of these established companies or schools, they will really offer some fantastic packages for anyone looking to, to, um, to take it that route. And I, I, can't only, I can only imagine that there's going to be a significant demand uh, because of what recently happened or what's going on of you know, teachers to come to China.
2: Yeah, for sure. And the other thing is, you are if you're so be based in Shanghai. There's two international airports on a a state of the art subway that will take you there. And excuse me, you are a few hours from Thailand, a few hours from Cambodia, a few hours from Vietnam, Singapore, Japan. You are eight hours from Bali if you want to Mm -hmm. kind of. I know. So that's it's it's a real nice hub to then also Mm -hmm. explore other parts of of Asia. In southeast mm-hmm. asia while you're yeah. here not to mention
1: how much there is to still see in china i was there and I, you know, I i wish i had even more time i only had a chance to go to you know shanghai xian beijing but there's just still so much to explore there
2: Yeah, absolutely one thing that i will say is um the language barrier is quite a challenge in china um, more so than anywhere else that i've ever been not so much in shanghai um but I, even even in Beijing, to some extent, you the sooner you can get a a basic grasp of Mandarin, the the way your life will be much much easier. And it's not like you know you and I were both in Seoul, and the level of people speaking English was you know the, everywhere. And like I said, they speak English better than me. Uh, but you won't you won't get that in China. It, there is mm-hmm. a, a significant language barrier here. So learning a little bit of the language is absolutely Paramount, I think. So I have an yeah. easier time with it.
1: And it's also fun to learn new languages. Of course, I remember when I was doing my Chinese course, I actually had such a blast of learning something in Chinese and then trying to go to the supermarket and, or going to the restaurant and saying, Fuan, Yitong yi Duo Shao Qian. And they'd be like, I don't even know if I'm saying it properly now, but I would be like, How much That's is this? <laughs> That was a that was a lot of fun. I think that's one of the 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 perks, of course, of, of going abroad. Is like you get to you know learn the language, and people really appreciate. I mean, that that's like my I have like those four lines in Chinese that I could say, like what my name is and how much something is. And then they respond to me, and I'm like, all right, that's all I know. But people really appreciate it. you can take that that effort to kind of learn a little bit. Uh, it means you know you're respecting the, the local culture and the local language. Yeah. So, for somebody looking to get a job in China and wants to kind of take this opportunity to maybe do it for a year or two, or even advance their career, or just to have something different for a little bit, where should they look for jobs? Because I know there's like lots of postings, and one of the most difficult things I think of taking a job in China or somewhere abroad is how do you know who to trust and how do you know where to, where to go for this?
2: So, th- there's levels to this. Um... If you have a specific, so I was fortunate in that I had a specific skill set that was in demand. So I was able to make contact with a potential employer who was willing to bring me in on what's called a Z visa, which is a foreign experts visa. So it it was very smooth for me to kind of land here. It was a skill set that they had a strong argument that a local person couldn't do the job. So they needed a foreign hire to come in and do it Mm. and thankfully i'm very grateful it was me that got that role i've continued on that visa and so it's like a lot of things once you're here it gets a lot easier to then transfer around um same for teachers if if you're going to if you want to come and teach and it's a reputable school they will not be telling you to work with a visa agent they will not be telling you to just come on a tourist visa and do this this and this a reputable education establishment or any business will have a hr person who will walk you through that visa process with you Mm -hmm. so one of the things that i would always kind of say be mindful when when you're kind of seeing how good the opportunity is ask questions about the visa because if Mm -hmm. you come unstuck and this has happened to teachers in uh, language training centers like the hagwons in korea your visa is on you it it Mm -hmm. won't be your company that get into trouble. It'll be you'll be on the next plane, deported with a 10-year ban from ever becoming mm-hmm. back in and 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 whatever else they managed to punish you with. So um don't like ask questions about the visa and a reputable company will have a HR person who who is an expert in doing that. What a lot of people do, if you if it's not necessarily a teaching career that you want to come and do, um a lot of people will come and maybe for the first three months enroll in a language school so that you can come on a student visa, spend three months learning Chinese and then if you if you kind of look for opportunities, so I've hired um, people in the past who are expat hires, they're already here, they're going through the language school process and then we just have to work on switching it from a student visa to the, to the relevant visa that they did. You're mm-hmm. not allowed to work on a student visa, you're not allowed to work on a spousal visa as well, so It's kind of a dull thing to have to worry about, but in a country that is quite as as bureaucratic as China is, visas are super key, and you want to be challenging the person who's offering you the visa, making sure you know the ins and out of your visa as well. I think you can get a pretty good gut
1: instinct when you have companies or schools that are reaching out to you and telling you to do things that are illegal in order for you to get there, then you can already yeah. getting an understanding of how they're going to be operating and you can start asking questions the other uh, thing that I would do is I would ask to speak with an expat uh, or a foreigner that's already living there hopefully you, you can get a good sense that they're being honest with you of what the conditions are and sometimes they will tell you like hey it's really not how they advertise it so definitely. definitely Definitely do your due diligence before you take that commitment of going abroad and and joining a school the more reputable of course the better uh but do do your due diligence because you hear horror stories all the time of people taking teaching jobs in korea or china and it just it just turns out a disaster so that's why i always ask that question because it's really it is it is a tricky path to to navigate when you're trying to do it because you're already taking on a risk you're already taking on you're already nervous and having that on top of everything is a huge bummer that can kind of cancel everything that you were going to plan to do so
2: and then having said that about all the visa stuff as well like one it is hard to get into china there's a lot of paperwork to get here bringing my parents over is a nightmare in terms of getting paperwork and visas and stuff like that but once you're here there are opportunities in all sorts of different industries and and different fields for all kinds of different skills there's a very much like an entrepreneurial spirit within the expat community that you get here. You know, a lot of people turn up as teachers and now they own a chain of restaurants or there's a one guy I know who's doing really well by making his own sausages and he sells hundreds of thousands of sausages in all the cities in China to all the expats who live there and like proper bacon and, and stuff like that. There's a guy who does retro football shirts. I've bought like four, off him recently right so he will he's got himself a factory and he has all the connections and he has the shipping and he's set up a really great little business i mean made to order retro football shirts so it's you know in terms of what opportunities are out there the list is endless it's just getting here that can be the challenge
1: yeah, and I, I agree with you. When I was in Shanghai, I actually had an opportunity to go to some networking events and meet some of these startup and entrepreneurial people. And that's the same vibe I got. Everyone kind of had really high spirits to, you know, start their own thing. And you know, China is just such a massive market. And if you could bring something that's unique and creative that no one else is doing, I mean, you have a massive you know, 1.4 billion population potential, you know, if you can even sell something for, I mean, think about the multinational companies, if you can sell something for a couple of dollars to, you know, people in China is mean, these a are, these are huge, huge sums of money uh, that's available out there. And I also met a lot of people that came originally as teachers. And from there, they kind of branched out as well. You know, some went into journalism because different opportunities, opportunities end up presenting themselves to you when you end up living there because of your unique skill set or perspectives.
2: To say you just said it more succinctly than I said it, but yeah, once you're here, and that's one of the big differences that I found between living in Korea and living in China. So, living in Korea as an expat, there were very few, unless you were brought in for a specific project by a company, there were very few expat jobs that weren't within education or mm-hmm. teaching or coaching of some description. Um, whereas in china it's such a broad spectrum that's a reason why
1: i kind of reached out for you uh reach out to you to to do this show because it was an interesting uh industry that you kind of went right into a business thing and doing something kind of non-traditional of not uh, teaching which is what you usually hear in china and it's cool that you're using your your business skill sets that even if you at some point decide to go back home you know you still can can transfer those back home which is is phenomenal one thing i wanted to ask which i'm curious about because i haven't worked in china but i know for example when living in korea where's the cor- corporate culture like because i know in in korea it was intense people working long hours i think they have some of the longest working hours of any country in the world and there's a huge drinking culture which was another facet that i wasn't even familiar with That would even translate to us as teachers you know going to the hueshiks of uh, drinking with your boss week or whatever it was And how is the corporate life in China?
2: Again, it's it's kind of varied and it varies where you are as well. So being in Shanghai, the the company that I work for has three owners and two are American and one is Chinese. And Mm -hmm. we have a very Western culture that perhaps my Chinese teammates have struggled to adapt to a little bit. So when we all had to work from home for seven weeks, it was fine for me because I'm used to remote working and having a bit of flexibility. Whereas my Chinese colleagues, it was kind of so far out of their comfort zone to not be in a working environment. Uh, Some of the big tech companies, um, Jack Ma, who owns Alibaba, he introduced a thing which is kind of like a, a buzz phrase on social media now, which is the 996. So it's Mm -hmm. working nine o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night, six days a week. And that's how you're going to be successful and and build a big company and, and, and all the rest of it. So some of the kind of the China tech startups that have spinning off into bigger corporations and things like that, they very much have that in place. Don't be surprised if everybody's expected to sing a song at the beginning of the day, if you're working or kind of doing group athletic, you know, group kind of exercises in front of the office building and and, and stuff like that. A lot of businesses do even if you if you walk outside, there's um, beauty salons, you'll see all of the beauticians and the hairdressers all like lined up, standing to attention while the head <laughs> hairdressers shouting mantras and they'll all salute and, and join in and, and stuff like that. So But it comes back to what we were talking about, about combating the virus. It's having that collective. It's being seen as part of a a greater good. It's a much less individualistic society Mm -hmm. in China than I've experienced everywhere else. Depending on the company, the work culture can be quite intense. What I found as a kind of a B2B specialist, I won't necessarily be at my desk from nine till six. Like I might go to the gym for a couple of hours during the Mm -hmm. day, but then I'm working eight till 10 because Mm -hmm. so it kind of evens itself out. And you'll you'll see that a lot. You'll see kind of people walking out of the office and taking a longer lunch, but they'll be in the office till nine o'clock at night as well. So the working day isn't perhaps the most efficiently structured. I mean, you're talking about long working hours in Korea. I've heard Mm -hmm. a story. It wasn't the most efficient way of working a lot of times in some of those companies. I've got friends who work in a more traditional Chinese environment and they're expected to be long hours, joining all the company activities, you know, go to KTV with the the boss, KTV is the karaoke parlors with the boss afterwards and stuff like that. My personal experience, I haven't had that. The company I work for is like a trendy marketing agency. So we model ourselves on a more Western working practice.
1: And how is the harmony between, maybe not just at your place, but maybe some of the your friends or colleagues that are out there, how is the harmony between the Western staff and the Chinese staff? I, mean, I know there's huge cultural differences. So are they able to work together or is there clashes or how, how do they integrate these two different kinds of cultures to working towards a collective goal?
2: What I will say is, is the onus is gonna be on you as the expat mm-hmm. to address that barrier. Um, but lots of different kind of um chinese people in my experience are culturally quite shy um, there's also quite a high pressure to be perfect so even though their english might be fantastic they'll be embarrassed to come and talk to you in english because they don't want to right. make a mistake which you know we wouldn't necessarily care but that's just how they've kind of learned and been brought up and, and things like that so it's 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 unusual that a chinese member of the team will be the person to instigate bridging that gap. It's very much on you as the expat to, to proactively, you know, join in, ask questions, be curious, you know, don't be afraid of kind of, don't be afraid of everybody laughing at you. Every time I open my mouth, all of our design department just crack up laughing. And I don't know what they're laughing at. And anybody who was a bit more sensitive might get a little bit paranoid. About you know, it's a, it's an embarrassment. It's a shyness. It's a, it's a cultural thing. You know, being, if you, if you're going to integrate it, like I said, it's, it's on me to go to them and be curious and respectful and show interest. It would never come the other way in my experience.
1: And, you know, some of these collective cultures are so ingrained in, in, in not only in the work life but also the outside of it when i was in korea for example i remember like anytime you go eating you're, you're, you're gonna eat in a, co- a collective group right you're eating korean barbecue you're eating you know together you don't order individual like oh this is my burger nobody touches it's it's collective and that kind of it slowly gets you adjusted to just the new culture and i remember one of the biggest culture things i had in, in korea was uh, during our last semester one of the children wanted to order some chicken for the classroom or I told them all to sit down and take a napkin and they're like no like why why can't we just eat together on this one table you know it was just like i'm like why not i, don't, I guess i guess let's do um and it was just so boring to them to to have to sit down and eat by themselves and on one napkin of one piece of chicken so so that 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 is interesting about the, the different cultures and and coming into harmony together So I want to kind of start uh, getting towards the tail end of here. And I want to, first of all, congratulate you. You just became a father recently. And to some of our viewers who have families uh, might be wondering, well, how is it like to raise a a family or a child in a completely foreign environment? Can you share some of your experiences with being a new dad in a foreign environment?
2: So, um, i guess for for us it's been nothing but positive um we there was as, when victoria got pregnant we were in beijing and there was plenty of very good international hospitals to choose from i think the only country that i've been to that i would have been worried about finding a high level of care would was maybe uh, cambodia and mm-hmm. that was a few years ago so we were never worried about the medical side of it, we had access to fantastic healthcare professionals, we had access to fantastic facilities and touch wood, everything with with that side of things went smoothly. Um, we found that parents who you know do become parents or bring small children, they're quite a tough bunch of expats and they stick together and they share advice and help each other out and stuff like that, so there's a really, really good support network as well even kind of you know people who you maybe only know through wechat chat groups about parent advice and and things like that you'll form a really strong relationship with um and it's been it's been nothing but positive for us it's it's tough it you know it's hard because you have to sacrifice you know he doesn't have a relationship with some of his cousins like i had growing up he sees Mm -hmm. his grandparents on live online maybe two or three times a week in for a holiday a couple of times a year. And that's, I find that sad, but he doesn't really know anything different. The flip side of that is that, so he's two and a half. He is fluent bilingual. Uh, he doesn't have my accent. The only thing he says with a Liverpool accent is Play-Doh. Everything <laughs> else just comes out in this weirdly like, mid-Atlantic accent. Um, and he speaks as much Chinese just naturally, like he will flip between the two. So if if we put him through school here and we're lucky that Victoria's a teacher and he can go to Victoria's school as of September, by the Mm -hmm. time he finishes primary school, he is going to have this experience of living in this culture, which is completely different from his parents' culture. So that, you know, we talked about how we navigate some of that cultural distance. He'll be a natural at it because it's just what he's done. My first holiday with my parents when I was his age was to a caravan, a trailer park in the north of England, like an hour away in North Wales. Um, his first holiday was to Bali, and I'm like, You little bastard, you are supposed to like kind of earn your way up to that. He, you know, we get to give him all of these experiences that was more difficult for my parents to give me as we were growing up as well. So he's going to, he's going to grow up with a much smaller. I, I don't, I was going to say a smaller world then it's not, it's a, he's going to have a bigger world than I had growing up, but it will just seem normal to him. I've got this ingrained ability to navigate that. One of the things that I struggle with a little bit is he's still a little bit of a novelty. So mm-hmm. he, he's he, thankfully he takes after his mum, So he's cute. He um, blonde hair, blue eyes, and speaks perfect Chinese. So, I, especially if we if we go out into the countryside or some of the more touristy spots, people want to touch his hair or touch his you know take his picture and stuff like that. And Victoria, uh, you remember Victoria? She's tall, blue eyed, and I don't know what color hair she's got because it's different every five minutes. But she has the same kind of thing. And, this, this is my problem. People always want to take his picture and things like that. Now, when they want when they come and engage and they chat and they chat to me and they in chat with him, then that's cool. That's one thing. But it's when you get people kind of shoving you out of the way and just sticking a camera in his yeah. face. I get a little bit popper bear with that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's been old men with cigarettes who've got up in his face and I've removed the phone, removed the cigarette, and I've asked what's up when they do that but it, it's my issue dealing with that they're just being yeah. friendly and they're just being curious but it is a reality you know if you some of my um african american friends as well you know a lot of people if you're traveling around china they won't have seen some communities won't have seen a white person some communities mm-hmm. will never have seen a black person so you are going to get a lot of attention in some of the villages and smaller towns and things like that but, mm-hmm. like i said it's just you know it was. It's a fantastic experience. It's been nothing but positive, bringing him into the world in China and bringing him up in China, and hopefully, it's going to set him up nicely in the future as well.
1: Of course, uh, you know you start getting a globalized perspective as a as a child, and I can imagine at those international schools. I mean, you're going to go to to school with students from all over the world, and you know they're just. I am,
2: there's, there is one thing that is a constant worry, and it's mm-hmm. which football team he's going to choose and the amount of the amount of money i spend in my team's club shop i'm hoping that's the investment that's going to make sure we don't have to have that conversation at some point that's a discussion you guys will have
1: to get when once he gets to that age level I have some friends right now uh, in multicultural relationships. So for example, a French uh, husband with a German wife, and they're trying to navigate how to have the child learn multiple languages as a child uh, while they're still young and their minds are like a sponge. So what has been your strategy to helping your uh, child learn Mandarin?
2: It's, so we, um, we've always read to him even when he was like three months old uh, We were, and he, he didn't know what we were reading, it's just being around language and being around words now, Victoria and I would always use English and he has what's called an Ai, which translates as auntie, pretty much, so Ai is like our, you know, she's our housekeeper she's his child carer um, he loves her to bits and she loves him and she just speaks to him in Chinese ever since the day he was born he's had lily speaking only chinese and we bought chinese books and chinese stories so when i do story time with him it's a it's an english book when lily does story time it's a chinese book you know so that the you know the nursery rhyme songs that he sings with me and his mum in english he'll sing the chinese equivalent with lily so it was just something that it, it it it's weird when you see him walking down the street so let's say he's walking down the street with you he'd be chatting to you in english and then the the security guard on the on the door he'll just turn and flip chinese and he's he's talking in now i have to think what i'm going to say and then think about it in chinese and then double check that i've got the tones right and then then say it kind of thing the benefit of, of bringing a child up as an expat is that language thing it's just going to be ingrained in him he yeah. has had to sit down and write the verbs out 10 times and learn how to conjugate it or or anything like that it's just a natural it's crazy
1: what a gift that you can give uh your child you know to be able to be bilingual and you know having (laughs) to be able to speak two of the most popular languages in the world to be able to communicate to the population of china and uh, all the english speaking i mean that's just that's impressive and that's such a gift that Appreciate till they get older and you know they might go to the UK and everyone else is like why are you speaking funny like what's going on and like dude I can I speak Chinese
2: he, he's like he's blonde he's got blue eyes he's cute he speaks Chinese we started him in kung fu and dancing lessons so there's a career in in Chinese movies coming up and daddy gets a Ferrari so it's win-win
1: yeah <laughs> off with the elephant in the room and if you can maybe just tell us about the situation currently in Shanghai.
2: So I guess we're probably a little bit we're about two months ahead of the rest of the world, I think. So we're sort of just starting to come out the other side now. Um right before the Chinese New Year, around the 25th, 26th of January, things started to get a little bit serious here. In days um, the whole country was in lockdown and lockdown in china was no joke um people were literally staying in their apartments for weeks and um, we're lucky in the neighborhood we live in there's a little bit of quiet open space um but we had about seven weeks i think of virtually not going outside maybe one trip to the supermarket for me and um, we've got a two-year-old as well so i got really good at making little assault courses all the way around the the apartment we're putting like superhero outfits on and indiana jones theme tune music and chasing Mm. each other and stuff so we had to get creative with that Mm. um one of the things that was really interesting was the technology that china brought into play as well so um we have this i'm gonna kind of treat it as if the two the two big mobile channels that we use here wechat and alipay i guess if you've not been to china you won't be that familiar with them, but they're they're ubiquitous everywhere you go here. Um, Via my Alipay account, I got health code, which was like a little QR screen on my phone. In fact, I can show you guys what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And mine is green because I never left China. I self-quarantined. I had my temperature checked everywhere I go. Um, When this was introduced, this QR code lets me get the subway as usual now, it lets me get into my office, it lets me go back into my gym, lets me go into all the hotels and the shopping malls and things like that. So we're starting to get back to regular daily life. Um, schools are still closed, um, but everything else, like I said, I've been this for about three weeks now. I've been in the gym open two weeks ago, cinemas have been opened, um, bars and nightclubs, not so much, but restaurants are opening again. So. Yeah, it was a quite an intense couple of months, but um, it was fascinating to see everybody coming together. Um, a lot of the things that they do here, and we'll, we'll talk about this, I think, when we talk about some of subtleties of living in China, you wouldn't get it anywhere else. You know, mm-hmm. um, the QR code thing, that I have, mm-hmm. right? That, that code now, it's green. Mm-hmm. When I get the subway in the morning, I scan another QR code on the subway, if anybody who was riding in the same subway car that I was in at the same time, I will get an alert on my phone if they if their health status changes. So straight away, I will get a text and an update and it says, you were in this carriage at 9 o'clock this morning. There was somebody else in that carriage. Please take precautions or please self-isolate and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So the use of data, the tracking of data, the use of mobile tech to combat, it's mm-hmm. way more than anything that I saw being done. It's it's a clear understanding. You're saying you're
1: getting stamped, and people are checking your temperature. Uh, wh- where is this happening, and who's doing it? State government officials.
2: It's a bit. Of, it's a, it's a bit of everything. So, when I, go, so I go to my office in the morning, and the security guard on the office with takes my temperature, checks my code. I give him my phone number, name, where I'm going to be, which room I'm going to be in. When I leave the office, I go to the gym, the guy, the security guard on the building, that the gym's in, he does the same thing. When I get into the subway, they've got heat scanners as the subway, and I show wow. my code there. When I come home, I get out of my building and the security guys on our compound, because we live in a, like a neighborhood of high rise buildings. Um, the security guards will take my temperature as well. So I'm having my temperature taken like six or seven.
1: And uh, I think we, we discussed this a little bit earlier. Uh, we were talking about kind of the, the cultural differences. I mean, how are the Chinese responding to this kind of these kind of new measures or the government uh, enforcing these kind of measures? Are they kind of really resilient or are they following along and all kind of, you know, rallying behind the cause?
2: Rallying behind the cause, following mm-hmm. along. Um, the government is is very skilled. When you need to pull the nation together at a time of kind of security or, or whatnot, um, the government is very good at stirring up national pride, stirring up a sense of community and a sense of neighborhood, um, being strict where they need to be strict as well. So we've seen footage online of the government using drones to kind of fly down on people who are walking down the street with no face mask on. Mm-hmm. and straight away it's kind of put your face mask on put your face mask on from this drone that's chasing somebody down the street right so yeah. it's, it's it's a little bit of both but people are much more much more about a collective here i think and compared to a lot of countries that i've lived in and worked in. so they're more half mine, um mm-hmm. through both carrot and stick people things like face masks even before the crisis most people would ride the subway with a face mask and they have done ever since the SARS outbreak, which was 2008, I think. You go through a Chinese airport, people are wearing face masks even. So it's it's a normal sight. It's not something that would freak. I know we're gonna talk about this later, but it's a very, very different system and culture. And all of that mixes together to make, you know, the reaction completely different to what you maybe get in the States, or what we get in the UK or something like that. Yeah, and I was just,
1: I just think about this when you're saying these drones chasing you, reminding you of your of your. Mask only imagine uh, the kind of responses we take in the United States. <laughs> they would be shooting the drones down. <laughs> it would, this uh, drone is not going to be on my property. Now. <laughs> and it'll be uh, <laughs> a couple hours later.
2: Like one of those heads.
1: <laughs> no one will encroach on my freedom wall. The freedom trophy will just be off. Um, yeah. But so. Um, people kind of fuck against these measures uh, against the from the Chinese government. I
2: haven't seen anything like that. There's mm-hmm. been some high profile stories of expats doing that kind of thing. And that works in the government's favor a little bit, because mm-hmm. the message that they've got at the moment is that they've they've done a lot to combat the, the virus. Mm-hmm. And it's people who are coming in from overseas now that are potential to have it rear its ugly head again. So as of last Friday, no foreigners are allowed to enter regardless of your visa status or anything like that we never left so that rule doesn't impact at all wow Um, if you i think over the last couple of weeks if you came back and you were checked at the airport if you had symptoms you were given a government quarantine or you've been into a hot zone if you were just coming back into china you had to do 14 days self quarantine at home and Mm -hmm. Different neighbourhoods reacted differently because it's the local neighbourhoods that manage it. It, it, It's been pretty relaxed. Um, Mm -hmm. My little boy speaks really good Chinese so everybody in the neighbourhood knows him. Like the little blonde two-year-old that speaks Mandarin. Everybody recognises him. They know we hadn't gone anywhere. So everyone was really, really cool and relaxed. Mm -hmm. Some people who I work with or who I'm, I'm friends with who maybe when the virus hit they decided to bug out. Plus, mm-hmm. it was Chinese New Year, so a lot of people were weeks off when yeah. they started. To, they were leaving the country anyway. When they come back, there's been quite a lot of restrictions. For the first 14 days, they'll be back. Some neighborhoods, they are putting tape on people's doors and putting motion sensors on the door so they know if you're breaking your quarantine. Oh, wow. But the neighborhoods have been really nice with it. Like They will bring your shopping once a day. They will bring your takeaway to your door and, and knock on your door, and they will... Um, take your trash every day. So you leave it outside your door and they'll take it. Your- or- yeah, so it kind of trickles down. So you've got central government who run it and then you'll have the provincial governments and then there's the city government and it goes all the way down to district, right down to the neighborhood. So okay. our neighborhood has a committee, which is mostly volunteers and kind of, mm-hmm. and the security guards. So they're the ones who are acting on the policy that comes down from above. Wow, so these volunteers are
1: risking uh, their lives and their health. And- Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is kind of interesting. As I mentioned, when I was living in China, I really felt like some tech issues. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. So uh, originally, when I was living in South Korea, I actually had uh, no interest in visiting China. To be honest with you, I was more interested in visiting Japan and Indonesia. Um, but during my master's studies, during my our MBA program, we spent the summer in Dalian, China. At the Dongbei University, on the northeast corner of China, a little bit uh, close to North Korea, Dalian's on a little peninsula over there, and it was a fantastic experience. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I was actually blown by the the culture and um, the sights, the food, and it was it was a little bit like the wild, wild west out there. Um, but the first thing that I noticed, of course, was when we went out there, we were all paired with a Chinese buddy from the university who helped us secure uh, housing because it's difficult, of course, to get an apartment in in China if you can't speak uh, Chinese. And so my, our, our Chinese buddies picked us up for at the airport, which is unheard of. I, I can't, this kind of kindness was, was surprising. So uh, the, I was picked up by my Chinese buddy. We went to get hot pots and we had a good time meeting each other. And then of course uh, she set up my apartment. So it was a great experience moving to a completely foreign country and someone just to take you in with open arms and help you get a phone plan. I was kind of blown away and uh, later, Uh, as these kind of cultural differences started to come out, like one of the first things that we we were told is that you have to notify the police of where you're staying within 24 hours of, of arriving in China. So you have to give them an address. And of course, we were hesitant and this was something that we were not used to. But as the weeks came along, you start adjusting to the different environment so for example we weren't you we, we couldn't use facebook you couldn't use gmail you couldn't use google but you find ways around it you get vpn walls and you learn to adapt pretty quickly to these circumstances and i was actually invited to a birthday party by my chinese buddy and uh, we went and got hot pot and had some uh, really good food and i actually tried and anybody one of the most <laughs> strangest and uh, least tastiest foods i've ever had in my life it was uh fermented soy I believe it was like a black uh, soy that was fermented and oh my gosh it was something new that I've never had in my life but I tried it and it was it was something new but the question I had while I was at that birthday was I was curious asking these locals how how they feel uh, living in China and you know some of the policies they have like the one child policy and these kind of what we as Westerners would believe was an infringement on our individual liberties and how they viewed it, you know, not being able to use Google, these kind of different um, policies. And, you know, they said the government is the way it is and we don't really care so much and we just just live our lives. And so that was kind of the theme I got when I kind of kept meeting more and more people was the government, um, certain uh, policies in place, But uh, people don't really get so worked up about most of these. And actually, my buddy turned to me. She said, you know, we have 1.4 billion people. I can complain why the government uh, had had a one child policy. They really didn't need to You really need any more people here. You know, we already have enough people as it is. So it was interesting their perspective and view towards the government uh, while while we were there. Uh, Some of the other experiences I had enjoyed uh, we're just meeting locals. The locals were extremely friendly. One of my favorite things to do on the beach, and uh, once we'd go on the beach there, l- local Chinese people would ask us to come join them for their picnics and share their food and drink with Of course, they we weren't really speaking Chinese that well, and they weren't speaking English that well, and so we would use uh, WeChat in order to communicate, uh, just translating to each other, but they were extremely friendly towards us, which was which was really uh, uplifting and a great feeling when you are in such a foreign land the other thing i wanted to also mention was kind of was intriguing to me was while we were taking these history courses of china and how they always had such a big fascination with the environment i was blown had sorry chinese country in the last 40 years has been you know number one priority was economics uh, with you know big consequences for the environment you know a lot of pollution air pollution And it's interesting to me how they have this yin and yang where they really care about the environment and they have poetry and they have thousands of years of of really being with balance and harmony with the environment. But yet they have this insane, you know, air pollution and pollution towards the environment. And it's like this yin and yang paradox. And I found this a lot to be the living there. Um, It's the same thing with some of the liberty. So when I was living there, I kind of felt really restricted by not being able to use Google and Facebook and then monitoring where I'm living. But on the other hand, I also felt this complete freedom, this wild, wild west that you can go anywhere you want, do what you want, that we just kept offsetting it. And I kept seeing these paradoxes uh, while I was living there. Oh, look at that. Uh, Steve, are you back?
2: I hope so. Can you hear me okay?
1: Yeah, I can hear you okay. I heard that you ran out, out, of, out of beer over there and you went to the grocery store. I was boring you.
2: Dude, they deliver. I don't have to go out. Again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, speaking of delivering beer, uh, I was actually fascinated by some of the technology when I was living in China. I mean, almost. I don't know your experience in Shanghai, but when I was there, uh, nobody uses cash. I mean, sometimes you can't even buy food because everyone is using, uh, was it WePay that they were using? Or WeChat?
2: so the, the, the two main, I guess the two main apps is We Pay. So mm-hmm. Alipay is, um, as it sounds, it's like an online, it's a mobile payment platform. WeChat is similar. So I, people describe WeChat as like a social media app in an app mm-hmm. and it's so much more than that. So my typical day, let's say I, I leave the house in the morning and, um, I will go downstairs and it's I have a 10-minute bicycle ride to the subway station. So I go into WeChat and I unlock a shared bike using the mini program within WeChat. I pay for it with WeChat. I cycle to the subway. I get on the subway. I use WeChat to get onto the subway as my ticket or Alipay. I sit down. I chat to my friends. I catch up with some guys in work. I make a video call to Victoria because maybe she'd already left by the time I've gone out then I'll order my coffee to pick up from the coffee shop at the ground floor, of the office
1: mm-hmm. without
2: even WeChat. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's like the Swiss army knife of, of mobile apps. Yeah.
1: You know. Yeah. That was insane. I even see it when I'm abroad in like Thailand and other places. I, I thought I saw people accepting uh, WeChat payments, which to me was fascinating. This, this transaction being everywhere.
2: So Alibaba, which is like, I guess you describe it as Amazon. But it believes mm-hmm. a little bit more than that. They have their own supermarket business called Herma, Herma Hippo. And it has its own app. So you kind of order your shopping, pay for your shopping, go and collect your shopping or have it delivered without touching cash or without touching your wallet. I can go a whole week without looking at my wallet. These days, because it's all on mobile tech.
1: Yeah. And that's not from you not wanting to see how much money is in there. That's just you don't need to see it, right? <laughs>
2: I've, got, I've got a two year old. There's never any money in my <laughs>
1: Um, Speaking of, is there any other technology that you kind of found fascinating when you got there? You were saying there's beer delivery services. Is anything else that uh, it was kind of like when you first saw it, you're like, wow, this is <laughs> something I've never experienced before?
2: So, China's always been, in my experience, in my time here, China's very much an early adopter of all Mm -hmm. things tech. Um, 5G is the thing at the moment, which is enabling a lot of the mobile channels and platforms that we talked about to be able to as well as they Mm can. Um, You've got to think, like most people's experience of Internet in China, they kind of skipped a generation even the, the the kind of elderly who wouldn't have had a computer and wouldn't have wouldn't have had a laptop as they were growing up, have gone straight to probably didn't have a mobile phone when you and I had mobile cell phones have gone mm-hmm. straight to the smartphone. So their first experience be it an 18 year old or an 18 year old of accessing the internet and accessing the technology is via a smartphone. So they're just connected to them mm-hmm. and it's it's part of their yeah that's life.
1: interesting and i that was also kind of some of my experience when i was living in korea i kind of also felt like the tech was a couple steps ahead of what was going on in, in the states like i remember just getting into your door everything is was was keyless like everything you always was was electronic and you go back home and everyone's still yes, using but
2: we were talking before we we lost the feed we were talking about the combat in the virus here and mobile mm-hmm. tech and the mobile platform very much part of china's strategy to combat mm-hmm. that Mm-hmm. So much so that I think they've got that much of my data now, they're probably not gonna to want to give it up afterwards. But I also mentioned while you were away that
1: we had a, a video call earlier today, me and you and you were in your in your office over there in Shanghai, and it seemed like everyone went was like life kind of back to normal. Everyone was working in the office. And um, is that kind of the vibe that's going on in Shanghai right now?
2: Yeah, so it's a long weekend this weekend. It's like um in the UK we call it a bank holiday. I guess it's like Labor Day weekend or something like that in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, tomorrow, me and my family will take a bike ride along the river. There's public places. There's public sand pits that my kid goes crazy for. And then we'll go and have some lunch and, and cycle home. And yeah, that's, you know, I, we can't go to the karaoke bars and we can't really go to the cinema. But other than that, there's pretty much- no- so inner city
1: movement or are there any domestic flights?
2: There's domestic flights, but depending on where you're traveling around, you might. So if I went to Beijing, for example, I might have to do some self-isolation and some quarantine. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: Other than that, yeah, you were pretty much, I mean, life's back to normal, but there's no travel or mm-hmm. city transportation or anything like that going on. But it's, you know, the flip side, it's not particularly sensitive to do that anywhere yeah. just started to get shanghai back to normal i don't think anybody wants to risk that just yet yeah absolutely yeah. and where are you getting your
1: information from like you just said you might have to swap self-quarantine if you went to beijing or you know people are telling you to you have to download these apps where is this information coming from do you guys have your own briefings every day with your own chinese dr fauci giving you advice
2: i mean there's <laughs> there's western owned media of uh, foreign mm-hmm. owned media within china there's um dedicated wechat news channels and news providers there's the state media and important news and will be issued in in english and yeah i mean it's again interesting that the government has used social media and relied on social media kind of trickling amongst the wider population to pass on the messages about you know what the rule changes are what the restrictions are when they've been lifted and things like that too. so again all via mobile phone via Google. fantastic that's fantastic
1: and I was just uh, s- s- telling people while you left that you know it was it was an, an uplifting moment and optimism of seeing you this morning working in your office knowing that life is going back to normal I was just discussing how I think uh, the worst was has is hopefully is over for you over there in China and it's just starting to hit the US uh, and it probably will be a, a pretty rough next couple of weeks. Uh, as we are trying to make our way over the hump, but it was uplifting to see that there is a tunnel uh, that you guys have overcame it and that you guys are slowly coming back to normal routine and normal life.
2: Yeah, for sure. We we had none of the the food shortages. I'm gonna have to ask you, nobody in China understands this. What's up with the toilet paper?
1: We just, we have to use the restroom a lot.
2: (laughs) Well, all right, but like, I mean, we had a tough couple, tough couple of months. There's always like a, a little bit of underarching anxiety, which never goes away while you're doing the self isolation. So it is tough. It, it's great now, and it's getting better. We're still vigilant, you know, still taking our temperature, still washing our hands, still wearing face masks if the, in crowded places. But you're right, life.
1: That's fantastic. That, that is great. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm usually an optimist, and I like seeing the positive side of things. And I'm really happy that that there is this light at the end of the tunnel because if you're reading the media back home it just seems like this you know draw like restrictions and you can't do this and when they then first they closed the nba down that's when I knew things were getting serious and then the toilet paper was gone and you know just one thing after another and it's 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 it's, it's good to see that there is hopefully light at the end of the tunnel and that we're gonna be able to kind of get over this uh together so i wanted to thank you today for for appearing okay. and uh, towards the end i have three quick fire questions i wanted to ask you okay okay first one is what is the craziest meal you had in china
2: starfish
1: Ooh. how was it
2: uh dry I had a little yeah bit. but then at the same time i ate a scorpion and some critics in Korea, I let I ate a live octopus, and in Cambodia, I ate a trilantula. So it's all been kind of weird, but yeah, starfish was pretty odd.
1: I was, while you were while you were wearing the tech difficulty, I was telling you about one of the strange things I had in China uh, was this fermented black soy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this at it's all. Tofu. Stink, okay, stink. Sorry, it was tofu. That's what it was. It was tofu. Yes, and I remember trying not to be rude, and my my Chinese buddy was like, "Just try this, see what you like," and I was just like. Wow, that was a totally different taste.
2: One of the things, so you, like um, in, in Shanghai and in Beijing, bullfrog, there's there's restaurants that specialize in frog, and you'll be kind of with colleagues or co-workers or guests, and they want to treat you as the guest of honor. So the best bit of frog or fish head will be kind of put on your bowl, and you, you got to go for it. But yeah, there's, that happens a lot.
1: Cool, thank you for that. Second question, I know you're an avid snowboarder. Favourite place you've been in the world, uh, snowboarding.
2: Uh, easy, Niseko, up in Hokkaido, northern Japan. I went off the backcountry on my own for two days, didn't see a single other person, the powder up here. That's easy one to answer.
1: I had a feeling you were going to say that because I remember you raving about how the snowboarding and the amount of powder that was in Japan uh, was something that you've never experienced before. Uh, last question. What is one of the most underrated cities or destinations that you have been to?
2: Oh, that's a good one. Um, Phnom Penh. I really loved um, Phnom Penh when we visited mm. the inn. I'm a I'm really big fan. of it. We've been to Vietnam a few times and always really enjoyed it. But Phnom Penh, we went maybe five or six years ago now. And really felt like a kind of little parts of that city really undiscovered jewel. met local taxi drivers who took me to the boxing with his family because he knew i was into boxing and, and stuff like that so yeah i really loved that part of the world
1: well thank you so much on being on our today. It was such a pleasure. I enjoyed it. I got so excited just talking to you earlier when we were just chatting one-on-one. It made me get goosebumps again thinking about my time in China and how much fun it was and how exciting each oh, week
2: Welcome. Come and stay. We've got a spare room. It's ensuite. suite. You have the whole place to yourself. I can't promise you that Iggy's not going to wake you up at six o'clock in the morning, but you'd be very welcome to come and pay us a visit.
1: Yeah, I'll be taking Chinese lessons from a two-year-old, so that would, that would be a, a good experience. But yeah, thank you again, I really appreciate it. It was fantastic uh, hearing about your story, hearing about some of your advice for people looking to, uh, if they were interested in, in in working in China. I know you mentioned as well, uh, sometimes you guys look for intern interns uh, to work for you guys, that brand to go. So feel free to reach out to Stephen if you can be of any assistance. And thanks again, and xie, xie and we'll talk again soon. May Wensi. Take care, stay safe, buddy.
2: And you, mate, take care, bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Ciao you